Well, let's go to Genesis chapter 2 this morning. Genesis chapter 2. I am pausing from our studies in Hebrews to give us an opportunity to take the month of December and just reflect and rejoice in what the season of Christmas means for us. I don't always do this each Christmas season, but felt compelled this year uh, to speak about the history of Christmas, the history of Christmas. And the history of Christmas begins in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, and I want us to begin reading at verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it you will surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, ye shall not eat it, nor shall ye eat. Touch it, lest ye die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave it to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? And the man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? 
The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will... Greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception and pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. He shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake and toil. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. Dust you are, to dust you will return. So Adam called his names, his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. I'm calling our series The History of Christmas because Christmas is indeed His story. It is His story. It is not the story of elves or sugar plum fairies and flying reindeer. It's the story of Jesus and His beautiful gospel. And as it is with all stories, they have a beginning. Some stories begin with once upon a time. Others begin with a long time ago in a land or a galaxy far, far away. The story of Christmas begins in a place that we are most likely not quick to consider. We think of the Christmas story having its origins in the gospel, and so we quickly go to Matthew chapter 1 or Luke chapter 1. It's where we quickly turn this time of year. In fact, in my own personal readings with the Lord this month, I began on December the 1st with Luke chapter 1, and I'm reading through the book of Luke every, every day equivalent to each chapter. It's where our minds typically go. That is where the story of Christ's birth unfolds before us. But in actuality, the story of Christmas began in Genesis. That's where the history of Christmas Starts. Now, I know to you this morning when we thought about coming to a Christmas series and opening it up in Genesis, uh, to some of you that's like celebrating Christmas in July. It just doesn't feel right to start a Christmas series in Genesis. But it is right. For here in Genesis, particularly Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, we have the first promise of a coming Savior. God said to Satan, in the midst of this dynamic in the Garden of Eden, 
He said in verse 15 of Genesis 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He, that is the seed of the woman, he shall bruise your head and you will only bruise his heel. You see, Christmas is our celebration of God fulfilling this promise. This this promise to send a Savior who would crush the head of Satan. That's what Jesus came into the world to do. He came to crush Satan. He came to destroy the devil. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8 says, For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested. For this purpose, Jesus Christ was brought into the world, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Thus, the promise that he, this Savior to come, will crush your, will crush Satan's head. And so when we talk about the history of Christmas, this is where we have to begin. We have to begin with the promise from the beginning of this world that God said to Satan, he, the seed of the woman, the coming Savior, the Redeemer of the world, when he comes, he will come to bruise, to crush your head. Let's walk through this together. The first thing we see is simply the setting, the setting here in the book of Genesis. We look at the setting in verses, or excuse me, chapter 1, 2, and 3, and of course the story of the history of the world beginning there in verse 1 of chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let us be reminded this morning that before there was anything, there was God. Everything that is was made by Him, and everything that was made by him, was made for his glory. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16 tells us that everything that God made, he made it for his glory, including us, human life. God manifested his glory in creating us so that we might know him and love him and trust him. So in Genesis chapter 1, we have the historical record of how everything began, the eternal God who has no beginning and no ending. He spoke it all into existence. The light, the waters, the galaxies, the the planets, the earth, the trees, the seas, the land, the animals, everything that is, God spoke it into design of his very creation. And with everything that he created, Genesis 1 tells us that he stepped back, looked at it and said, it is very good. It is very good. Now, we may not understand the magnitude of God's galaxy and how all of his creation works, but when God created it, he stepped back and said, wow, it is good. In other words, it brought him great pleasure. The earth brought him pleasure. The planets brought him pleasure. The trees, the animals, it all brought him pleasure. But a special creation. Genesis 1 tells us that he saved for last. On the sixth day of creation week, he created man and woman too. It's very important you understand this because there are some in theological circles who would try to undermine this. But hear me out very clearly. These are two historical human beings. They are not mythological beings. 
They are two historical beings named Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7 says, And God formed man out of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And here's the best part. When God created the first human beings, Adam and Eve, it was, it was all perfect. It was all perfect. Everything was perfect. The, the world was perfect. The garden where they lived was perfect. And yes, even Adam and Eve themselves were perfect, perfect. No sin, no suffering, no sorrow, no, no chaos, no conflict, not even death. God lived with them and together with God, they, they walked together, they talked together, they, they enjoyed God and each other together. All of his creation they enjoyed and experienced in perfect harmony and communion together. Adam and Eve enjoyed their job because their job was perfect. They enjoyed their marriage because their marriage was perfect. All that God had richly given to them, it was absolutely perfect. It was truly paradise. It was perfection, perfection, everything. In these moments that existed, it radiated the glory of God in a way that really, honestly, sitting here and thinking about it, our flawed and sinful minds just fully cannot grasp just how perfect, how perfect everything was. And in all of this, God gave his perfect people, Adam and Eve, one test. And the test was whether or not they would believe God's word. The test was whether or not they would trust his plan. We read it a moment ago there in chapter 2 and verse 16. Look at it again. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Again, the test, the test. Would they believe God's word? Would they trust his plan? God says, I've given everything for you to enjoy. It's just this, this one tree. Don't, don't eat it. Don't eat it. The truth is the same test confronts us today. Will we believe God's word? Will we Trust his plan. That, that's, that's the summary of Genesis 1 and 2. But when we open up Genesis chapter 3, we see the appearance of something that gives most of us chills. A snake. And it's one of God's created snakes, by the way. Think about this. God created this snake. But it came under the control of Satan. It became the the tool of Satan. Revelation chapter 12 and also Revelation chapter 20 identifies who this, this snake is. Satan. He, he, he calls him the serpent of old. The serpent of old, the writer of Revelation does, John. Referring to Satan and him taking control of this snake in the Garden of Eden. Well, who is Satan? He's the enemy of God. The once angel. And God's heavenly chorus who rebelled against God because he wanted to be God. And as a result of his pride, he was cast out of heaven. And one third of the angels were cast out with them because they agreed with Satan. They, they wanted to follow Lucifer and they subsequently became demons under Satan's power. So, so here's the point this morning. We're not dealing with some random snake. 
We're not dealing with a mythological creature. We are dealing with Satan himself. Now, I know some of you who like to sit around and drink coffee and discuss things like I do. You would like for me to, to dive into the endless questions about the origin of sin and why God allowed for us to experience these things and he allowed for all of this to happen. But listen to me carefully. These things are hidden in the mystery of God. And it would do some of us a whole lot of good to leave the things that God intended to be a mystery in the mystery of God. To leave it there. To leave it alone. To let the main things be the plain things and the plain things to be the main things. We can get into all these endless discussions that are meaningless about where it started and why God allowed it. What God wants us to know is, is that Satan came to disrupt and destroy his perfect kingdom. That's why he's here in the Garden of Eden. He's here in the Garden of Eden because Satan's plan has always been to disrupt God's kingdom. His plan has always been to destroy God's kingdom. That was his desire in heaven, and now it is his desire on earth. This is why he's here, and that is what he's doing even today. Everything he can to destroy God's kingdom. So Satan comes here in chapter 3 and verse 1 first to Eve. And he says to Eve, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? I find the way in which he proposes this question quite interesting because it, it appears here that he's trying to cast doubt first on God's goodness. Now he's going to bring Eve to a place of questioning God's word here in a moment, but the first approach is, to cast doubt on God's generosity toward them. Did God really tell you that you can't have all of his goodness? Is God really holding back some stuff from you guys? I mean, I thought you were his special creation. Did God really tell you that you can't eat of every tree of the garden? Was that what God said? No, that's not what God said. But what he's trying to do, he's trying to call God, cause God's creation to think that God is not a good God. That he's not generous in the things that he provides for us. And so Eve affirmed that God said they could eat of everything except for the tree that's in the middle of the garden. Because if they eat of it, they will die. To which Satan responds in verse 4, you'll not surely die. So again, he's, he's trying to cast, cast a doubt on, on God's generosity to them. Now he's causing them to doubt God's word. You will not surely die. That's not true. That's not how it's going to happen. He then tells Eve in verse 5, God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you're going to be like God. And you're going to know good and evil. And in what has become Satan's standard attack on humanity, he tempts Eve to doubt God's word and question God's goodness. And that is the same approach that he takes in my life. My life. He wants me to doubt God's word and doubt or question God's goodness. And it's what he wants to do in your life. Surely this all can't be true. Would God really do this? Would God really carry this out? And then we think about all the good things that God has provided and given to us. 
And Satan comes along and says, yeah, look, look at what God has done for you, but he hadn't done this. And he hadn't allowed you to have that. I mean, is he really as good as you think he is? Is he really as good as he says he is? I mean, look at what you're going through. Look at what you're suffering. He's not allowing you to have everything in the garden. This is how Satan attacks. Questioning God, questioning God, questioning God. Questioning his generosity, questioning his goodness, doubting his word. And verse 6 of chapter 3 tells us that Eve considered what the snake told her. I don't know how that went down. Did God allow some type of in this perfect world, we, we, we understand that to some degree the animals and mankind enjoyed harmony uh, together in the garden before the actual fall took place. I, if, a, if a snake started talking to me in my backyard, I mean, we're going to have some major problems. <laughs> I don't, I don't know how this all went down, but it doesn't, it doesn't seem like here she recoils at all. I mean, what, what's the first thing you're going to do if a snake starts talking to you? You're going to go find somebody and say, I think, I think I took too many, too many pills this morning. Because there's a snake talking to me, and I'm not sure. Under, I mean, wouldn't you think if this would have been a, sort of a strange scenario that Eve would have went to Adam first before she even has the conversation and says, I, I think I'm hearing things. But no, she's glued in, she's, she's trapped. It's, it's a great reminder to me that Satan's attacks on our lives are often surprise attacks. We're captivated by what he throws before us. And her response to him has become our very own universal problem. What she saw in the fruit was more appealing to her than what she heard from God's word. And that's our problem. It's my problem. And too often in our lives, Satan puts the shiny fruit in front of us, and what we see from the fruit is more appealing to us than what we've heard, what we've heard God say to us. His temptation, it appealed to her senses, her sight, her intellect, every part of her. It's the same way that, again, he, he tempts us today, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life, and as a result, what does she do? She, she ate the fruit. She ate the fruit. She took it. She was the first to do it. But not by herself. Because verse 6 tells us that her husband, Adam, look at it there in your Bibles because perhaps you may have missed this. I've read this so many times and, and it, just, it just hit me differently this time. She wasn't standing at the tree by herself. While she was there, the Bible says she immediately, she gives it to her husband, Adam, because he was what? He was with her. He was with her. Right there. I don't know about you, but whenever I, when I rehearse the story in my mind, sometimes I always, and maybe it is because we like to laugh about the flannel graphs and the pictures and all. Maybe it's because that's what we have in our minds, you know, when we see the serpent and the snake and the apple, whatever fruit it may have been, we just see Eve by herself. Maybe Adam's there tending to some of the plants or brushing the hair of a lion, whatever it is that he was doing. But no, that's not the case. He wasn't somewhere else. He was right there. And he was being passive about the whole situation. Someone has even suggested that perhaps Adam standing there, not being the first to speak up, was because he was in a very weird way 
waiting to see if his wife would actually die by eating it. He's right there. She's doing the talking. Maybe he's not saying anything. Maybe he's not cautioning her. Maybe he's not pulling her back because in his mind he's listening too. And maybe just perhaps if she does take a bite and doesn't fall over, then maybe I'm good to take it myself as well. That's exactly what happened. She took a bite and she did not immediately die. Maybe after a few moments went by, Adam thought, well, she's okay. (laughs) I'll take a bite too. And so she gave some to him and he ate it too. Listen to me. Eve listened to Satan. Adam listened to Eve. But nobody listened to God. Nobody listened to God. That's the setting. Look at the consequences, number two. The consequences. It begins at verse 7 in chapter 3 and really takes us through the rest of the chapter. Now, Romans chapter 8, verse 22, it gives us a great picture of what happened cosmically at that moment. Let me read it to you. Romans 8, 22. For we know that the whole creation, God's creation, it groans and labors with birth pains together until now. And when they sinned and disobeyed against God, all of creation was affected. It experienced sorrow and suffering and sin. And, and to that point in the garden, to here we are more than, more than 6,000 years later, creation is still groaning. It is still laboring with pain. The eyes of both Adam and Eve were also immediately opened upon eating the fruit, as we read about here in Genesis. For the first time in their existence of of their created state, they experienced what it meant to sinfully disobey God. And the first thing they realized after sinfully disobeying God was that they were naked. It's the first thing they realized. Their eyes were open and they saw their condition. And that's the point of, of, of the scripture drawing us to their nakedness is that sin changes everything. Sin changes everything. Because the idea of them being naked in chapter 2 not only speaks of their marital communion together, but it also speaks of their complete innocence in God's perfect state of creation. There's nothing to hide from. They're, they're completely innocent. But now the very first thing they feel, they, they feel, they feel exposed Something's not right. And that's exactly what happened. They were exposed. And their nakedness was simply a symbol of their situation before God. They had now hearts of sin that are fully exposed to God. They felt immediate alienation from God, separation from Him. Which is why they go and attempt to cover themselves up with fig leaves. It's it's why they're hiding the freedom and communion that they once had in their sinless state was absolutely gone. No more freedom. No more communion. Look at me. What is wrong with me? i got to go cover up. But you have to love verse 8. Look at verse 8. After their sin is exposed, after their condition before God is felt... God is not absent. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
Is this not beautiful? That even though they had disobeyed God, God still comes and seeks them out. He still chooses to speak to them. And that's what we need to understand about our own sin. He exposes our sins that he might cover it. He reveals our sins to us in order that he might forgive it. He doesn't do it out of an act of judgment. He does it out of an act of grace and mercy. He exposes them for their nakedness. And then he seeks them out. He comes to speak to them. He comes to talk to them. Oh, this is the grace of God. That's why many of our friends will not come to church with us. Because they don't want God to speak to them. They won't want to be told about their true condition. Although if they just understood that God's speaking to them is not to condemn, but to give him his marvelous grace. Of course, the whole dialogue in the next few verses after verse 8 is one we're all too familiar with in our own sinful lives. There's guilt for what they've done, shame, separation, blaming each other, blaming the serpent, blaming the wife, blaming the husband. Everybody's blaming everybody. So why is it that God actually comes after them? He could have simply let them go and die right there in their sinful state. He could have done that. He had every right to do that. But instead, he called them out. And you know why? Because he still loved them. They had absolutely defied him, but he still loved them. And you know this morning, there would be no hope for any of us if that were not true. He still speaks. He still comes because nothing changes his love for his creation. And we're going to come to verse 15 in just a moment. But notice that everything changed when Adam and Eve sinned. A world that was absent of sin, sorrow, suffering, chaos, death. It was now cursed by sin and all of its consequences. In verse 16, God says to Eve, I'm going to greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception and pain. You're going to bring forth children. I think this is much more than the actual act of giving birth. I think this extends into the sinful struggles and battles there are in raising children in general. It's not just the act of it, but it's the, it's the releasing of our kids. It's the entrusting them. It's bringing them up in a world that is corrupted by sin. It's not just the pain of childbirth itself, but it's also the struggles and the hardships in parenting in general. And I've heard many a mom say on numerous occasions that the pain, the pain at times, the hardship that we have to go through in seeing our children perhaps even make decisions that would be in defiance against God is so much more difficult than the actual pain it was to bring them into the world. So I think, I think this is sin affecting everything, not just physical pain. I think it's emotional pain, it's mental pain, it's, it's spiritual pain when it comes to our, our families. And verse 16 also speaks of the conflict that will now come in their, in their marital relationship. The, the ESV says it much more clearer. It says your desire will be contrary. That's the word the ESV used. Your desire will be contrary to your husband. 
That, that is, they were once perfect for each other, living in their God-ordained roles, but now sin has interrupted everything. Sin has changed everything. What was once a perfect marriage is now a marriage that's going to need a lot of work. What was once a perfect family is now a family, a, a mom and dad who's going to experience one son killing another son. Sin has, sin has changed everything, not just about Eve, but also to Adam. Verse 17, God says to Adam, cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil ye shall eat of it all the days of your life. Not only is the work that was once perfect now filled with hardship, but when it's all over, Adam, you're going to return to that same dust by which you, made, you were made. Think about what he's saying to Adam. Adam, you're going to till this ground, and it's the same ground in which you will expire of course, that's the ultimate consequence of sin. Man was created in a perfect state in order that we might live forever, but sin has taken that away. And it's not just the first man's problem. It's our problem too. We will die. For many, many occasions in my life, as I did yesterday, I stood before another casket of another lifeless body. And I never do such a thing without thinking in my mind, when is that moment going to be for me? The Bible says in Romans 5, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered the world and death through sin, thus death has spread to all men because we've all sinned. This is the ultimate consequence. Let me wrap this up. Let me give you number three. What's the answer? What's the answer? Well, the answer is back in verse 15, the one that I said was our, our text that I've not spent a lot of time on yet. Now God said to the snake, to Satan, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. So again, this is the first time that the gospel is laid out in the Bible. God was promising in this moment an answer, an answer for Adam and Eve's sin. Not only an answer for their sin, but an answer for our sin in God's grace. And in God's steadfast love, he's going to provide a Savior who will come through the seed of the woman. That is a Savior, the Savior, will be born of a woman, miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit. Notice what it says. He will come through the seed of the woman, not the seed of the man. It's very important. Because the emphasis of the, of the Redeemer, the Savior, the one who's going to destroy Satan coming through the sea of the woman, it speaks of the incarnation of God. What was the first declaration of the virgin birth in the Christmas story? Genesis 3.15. That there is going to come from the seed of the woman a Savior who is going to destroy sin. And here's what's going to happen. He says in this verse that Satan's going to cause the seed of the woman to suffer. That's what is meant when it says he, that is Satan, is going to bruise his, the Savior's, heel, his heel, his foot. That is, he's going to cause the seed of the woman to, to suffer. We understand that suffering as his death, as his burial. But when the suffering is finished, he, the seed of the woman, the savior for sinners, he's going to rise up and he's going to crush the head of Satan. You, Satan, may bruise his heel, but when it's finished and he rises from the dead, he will bruise your head. Your head. 
There's a great difference in the bruising of a heel and the bruising of a head. The bruising of a heel is just momentary lapse. The bruising of a head is complete defeat. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that in so much children have partook of flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, likewise, he shared in the same. He shared the same flesh and blood that we do, that through death, that through death, through the bruising of his heel, he might destroy him, that is, he might bruise his head, the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and he's going to release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. This is why he came. This is why the manger is there. It's why we celebrate Christmas, because Jesus came to bruise the head of Satan, to destroy sin. And when you begin to study the Bible, you quickly realize that everything Satan does before the birth of Jesus is to keep Genesis 3.15 from happening. You ever thought about that? Everything he's done from this point in the garden is to stop the promise that God made in Genesis 3.15. He doesn't want to get to the he will bruise your head part. Doesn't want to get there. Hence, we see the unfolding drama of Scripture When we have stories like Pharaoh against Moses. Why is Pharaoh against Moses? Why is God's people coming under captivity? Because Satan's doing everything he can to keep Genesis 3.15 from happening. We see Pharaoh against Moses. We see Goliath against David. We see Nebuchadnezzar against Daniel. And then when we come to Bethlehem, when Christ is born, we see Herod decreeing that all the male children under two are to be killed. Why? Because he doesn't want this to happen. But Satan couldn't stop his birth. And when he couldn't stop his birth, he tried to stop him from fulfilling God's plan by tempting him in the wilderness. Jesus is fasting and praying. He's in the wilderness. Satan comes to him and says, look, here, that we can make this simple. I'll give you everything you want if you'll just do it my way. What's he trying to do? He's trying to stop Genesis 3.15 right up until the very night before his crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane. Satan is doing everything he can to keep Genesis 3.15 from happening. But he cannot. For Jesus Christ is the second Adam who came to crush the head of Satan. And church, he did crush his head. (laughs) He defeated him. At the cross, and he will one day destroy him when he returns again. You see, Satan couldn't stop Genesis 3.15 from happening, but he's doing everything he can today to stop you from believing his word. He's doing everything he can to keep you from trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior. We sang it. Austin alluded to it in Hark the Herald Angels. See, he is the second Adam who has come from the, look, the first Adam was a failure. He was a flunk. He could not fulfill what God had designed. And so the second Adam came, and he did fulfill it. And he remained perfect, and he reinstated God's creation into his love. He accomplished exactly what he said he would. He bruised the head of Satan. He bruised it, destroyed it, crushed it. And here's what I want you to know about our text this morning from the history of Christmas as we conclude. We celebrate this season because it is the fulfillment of the promise that though sin ruined what God had perfectly created, He provided an answer. 
He provided an answer, his only son, Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Redeemer, who came from the seed of the woman to crush the head of Satan, to provide forgiveness of sin and eternal life for all who simply, listen to this, believe. Believe. Anyone who believes. Anyone who believes in the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ and what he has come to do, can have eternal life. Have you believed? Not in yourself, not in the church, not in religion, not in a God that does not exist in his word, a God, oh, maybe, maybe, maybe those things won't happen the way that you say they're happening. I, I believe he's God. I just don't, I just don't think it's going to happen the way it says it's going to happen. That's not faith. That's not belief. To be saved this morning is to understand that this book is true. And when I acknowledge it to be true, it is to confess Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior, acknowledging my sin, not just Adam's sin, but my sin, my rebellion, my disobedience against God, my great need for Christ as my Savior. Romans 5.19 says, As by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Because of Adam, we got problems. And we were born into those problems. But the verse goes on to say, so also, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Because of Adam, we got problems. Because of Jesus, we have an answer. In either case, it has nothing to do with me. Not in the sense that that. When I, I was born into this world, my sin nature was given to me because of Adam. And when I am born into the family of God, it is not because of anything I've done. It is given to me through Jesus Christ because of his gracious gift and sacrifice for me. I wonder this morning, have you been rescued by the second Adam? Let the history, the his story, the history of Christmas be the history of your life. Your life. Come to Jesus. Look into the manger. See the child who came to crush your enemy and give you life through his death and resurrection. Every story has history. It has history. And there is no future eternally for you in God's kingdom unless in your history, which can begin today, there has been a moment that you have trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. Sitting in the funeral yesterday for my wife's grandfather, I was reminded of how he came to Christ. It was a beautiful story. Some of you may have heard of the old evangelist in the 1950s, Oliver B. Green. Oliver B. Green was holding a tent meeting in the Greenville, North Carolina area. My wife's grandfather, her uh, his brother-in-law invited them to come to the tent meeting. The problem was they had three young children, I think ages three, four, and five. There was no nursery at the tent meeting. And so it seemed kind of ludicrous for him to, to jump out and do something like that. So the, so the brother-in-law, I think it was my wife's great uncle, Paramore, decided that he would have the first nursery of the tent meeting in the car. So he watched the kids in the car while Mr. Real and went in to hear the preaching of Oliver B. Green. It was that night after hearing the preaching of Oliver B. Green, the gospel message that we have declared to you this morning, that he put his faith in Jesus. He trusted Christ as his Lord and Savior. And the rest is history. Life changed. 
Maybe it was in a tent meeting. Maybe it was in a church. Maybe it was in a living room for Keegan. And it was on the side of a road. For Ellie, it was in her bedroom. For Kate, it was in our living room after the lunch table on a Sunday afternoon. For me, it was in a, it was in a Christian school chapel service. For my wife, it was in her home with her parents. His story involves us. That is, if we will come to him who has crushed the head of Satan. Let Christmas actually mean something this year. Let it mean something by trusting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Let us help you do that. Even now as we begin to pray, call out to him in faith. Meet with me at the end of the service. Let's go have a cup of coffee if you have more questions. Let his story become your story. Let's stand together for prayer.